We're going to pick up tonight in 1 Kings chapter 9. We've been following the life of Solomon, the son of David. Um, Tonight we will finish his reign and move on to the next generation in Israel. But chapter 9, the first 10 verses or so, the first 9 anyways, um, are actually really a conclusion of what we've already seen. And so it will make a good transition and review. Um, Let's read it together beginning in verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. So you may remember way back after Solomon had made sacrifices at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to him and asked him what it was that he wanted. What could he do Uh, for Solomon. And Solomon asked for wisdom, the ability to rule the people uh, God had given given him well. And so God promised to do that for him as well as to give give him wealth, peace from his uh, enemies, and long life. But he included a, uh, a stipulation. He said, but you need to keep the covenant all your days. You need to obey me and not depart from me. And so now um, that's kind of culminated with the dedication of the temple that God has built, the temple being filled uh, with the presence of God so that the priests could not minister. Um, And here now we get God's second vision or second um, revealing to Solomon. And this time it's in response to the dedication of the temple. So we read verse 3. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart. Uh, The word there for integrity of heart is literally with a complete heart with a fullness of heart, 100% of the heart, Uh, and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me or your children... Uh, Do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And so he warns him here um, that although God's intentions are to treat Uh, that temple very dearly where his heart and his eyes will be constantly, he says, 
um, that if he does not keep the covenant, if he goes on to worship other gods, uh, then not only will God not honor the temple, uh, but he will see its destruction and Jerusalem's along with it and Israel's deportation. In fact, it finishes there by saying that Israel will become a proverb or a byword among all peoples. In other words, the disaster that comes on Israel will be so strong, others will use it as a point of reference for terrible things happening. Okay? Verse 8, this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on the gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Now, notice the irony of that last scene. The scene is post the destruction of Jerusalem, the temples in ruin, and foreigners who are passing through see it and they go, what went wrong? And even they know the answer, right? Even they go, wait, Israel was the one who was delivered out of Egypt by their God, but they turned and worshipped other gods, right? He puts kind of the punchline in the mouth of pagans, if you will. Um, to kind of double down on the seriousness of what's going on. Now, it's worth pointing out here, as I mentioned, that this is the second warning Solomon is given. It won't actually be the last one. And the thing about God is that he rarely ever or never ever wastes words, okay? He gives this warning because it's a significant danger in Solomon's life as it is in ours. In fact, remember who the original audience that this book was written to is, right? Where does this go? Obviously, it was written to Israel, but where in the timeline? Well, since 1 Kings and 2 Kings are probably originally one book, uh, that timeline at least brings us to the end of 2 Kings, right? We generally don't write a book to an audience until, you know, until it's our time, until it's present tense. We very, very rarely write letters to the past. Okay. And so this book is being recorded for the people at the end of the book. And where do we find Israel at the end of 2 Kings? Deported. Right? This warning isn't future tense for Israel, it's present tense. And so you have to recognize that as we read the book, there is this foreboding and this impending consequence that we should already know has come upon Israel. Okay? And so we have to read it through that lens, and we should hear this warning for what it is. First off, the faithful warning of a loving father, right? This is not uh, best read as a threat, but better read as a warning, okay? Now, it's worth pointing out that everything that comes upon Israel is dealt out by the hand of a sovereign God. However, uh, threats are generally made uh, against the interest of those we threaten. Warnings are made with their best interest in mind. And so here, Solomon is not just getting this laid out before him by God because worshiping God is so important, but also because the consequences are so dire. And so God lovingly warns Solomon in advance. And the second thing we can point out here is at the end of the history of Israel, we find in First and Second Kings, the one thing Israel can't say is we didn't know. We will see over and over again that it's not just Solomon that gets the warnings, but Solomon's son and Solomon's son's son and so on and so far down the line to the degree that the author will tell us that God never left himself without a witness, but was continuously sending the prophets to Israel to warn them. 
okay? Uh, and so, uh, so as they read this chapter, it's, it's grievous for them because they're reflecting on a warning unheeded. They're, uh, they're basically, the, the book of First and Second Kings answers the question, how did we get here? Okay. Um, and so, verse 10. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built two houses, which the, ha- the house of the Lord and the king's house. Remember, seven years on one, 13 years on the other. Verse 11, and Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and timber and gold as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Now, this is interesting because the last time we encountered King Hiram, he was still the supplyman for Solomon. But the way Solomon was paying for that uh, was in feeding Hiram's royal house, okay, footing the bill year after year uh, for their table. Uh, but here, uh, when the project is all complete, he gives 20 cities, all of them in the land of Galilee, the same area that Jesus lived in around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he gave them to Hiram, but verse 12, when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore, he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given to me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul means worthless. Okay. Now, we've seen small warning signs before, but here's a significant place. Now, let's be fair here. It doesn't seem uh, that, uh, that Solomon hasn't kept up his end of the bargain. That's not the problem. This is more, it reads like, so far, like a completion bonus. Okay, it's, it's a thank you for all of your work, but then he gives him the worst Israel has to offer, and uh, Hiram sees right through it. It may even be worse than that. Look at the next verse, verse 14. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Now, we were already told a few verses earlier that one of the things that Hiram was sending was gold. Okay, for comparison here, 120 cal- uh, talents, that's four tons of gold, okay? That's two uh, four-door cars worth of gold. It's an extensive amount, even in the ancient world, it's an extensive amount of gold. Uh, some suggest here that that gold was given basically because, uh, because Solomon got in over his head on these building projects, and so Hiram came to the rescue financially, and that's where the 20 cities come in, to repay the debt. Now, that's not actually in the text. It may be more than is implied here, but the thing that's striking about this is Hiram has been all for Solomon and his building projects since the beginning fully gracious, and Solomon doesn't, with deep respect and appreciation, recognize that, but kind of sloughs this off. In fact, listen to the tone of Hiram's words in verse 13. What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? Right? The implication there is this isn't worthy of our relationship, right? Um, and so, so here we can see something, but we don't know what it is yet. Let's continue. Verse 15. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo and the walls of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Okay. Now, side note, that's also got a little bit of foreboding in it because the last time we heard Solomon talk about conscripting labor, remember this is made up of two forces. Some of them are the uh, water bearers of Israel. Those are original Canaanites. 
who were conquered by Israel but not destroyed, and so they're, they're effectively forced labor. <coughs> labor. And then there's this conscription of uh, Israel citizens, Israeli citizens, um, who take four months out of the year on a three-month rotation uh, to build these projects. The thing is, when this was set up, Solomon sets it up and says, this is to build the temple. But he experiences here mission creep. So it's, this is to build the temple, and since you're here, why don't you build my palace? And then I've got some remodeling I want to do in Jerusalem, and Hazer, and Megiddo, uh, and Gezer. We're going to find by the end of tonight that they feel overly burdened by the cost of all of this forced labor. Um, but Solomon has allowed his authority and his ambition to control this. In fact, notice Gezer, verse 16, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer. Now, the thing is, Gezer is right on the boundaries of Israel's control. In fact, what's interesting here is we see the Pharaoh, king of the Egypt, doing what Israel was called to do fully and completely, driving out the, uh, driving out the inhabitants uh, and taking over the city, uh, and then giving it freely to Solomon's wife, who happens to be his daughter. But Solomon continues to just utilize the, uh, utilize the servant labor and not fulfill the full command of God. Notice the list isn't done here. Not only Gezer, but Lower Beth Horon, and Baalith, and Tamar in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, and all the store cities that Solomon had, the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion. Okay. And so he keeps these people on, not for the seven years that they were employed, but for 20 and then many years beyond that for an entire generation. Okay, verse 20. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, those are the original Canaanite inhabitants. Their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Now there it mentions Pharaoh's daughter and Solomon builds her her own palace and the chronicler, the one who writes the parallel book of Chronicles, tells us the reason is because it wasn't appropriate for her to live in Jerusalem because the ark had been there and where the ark had been was holy. And so here is a uh, non-Jewish uh, woman who worships the gods of Egypt and so he basically royally quarantines her. Okay. They have his and her palaces. Hers is on the outside of Jerusalem. Um, and so here he does that, and then he builds these other places. Now notice once again, Solomon's relationship with the Lord and his worship of the God of Israel starts strong. Verse 25, three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offer it, offerings with it before the Lord, 
so he finished the house. Okay, and so the last glimpse we're given here is into his annual worship. And when it says he uh, offered offerings three times in the year, those are probably at the three major pilgrimage festivals that all Jewish men were required by uh, Deuteronomy to attend. And so he keeps that, and that's part of his life. Verse 26, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon, and they went to Ophir, and they brought from their gold 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Now, last time we encountered gold in the text, it was only 120 talents, and that was four tons. And so now, uh, now we have three and a half times as much as that, 12 tons that is being referenced here um, of gold that's being brought to King Solomon. Um, so, here is everything Solomon did. There are things to be suspicious of, but chapter 10 reads like a glowing review. In fact, as we're going to see, chapter 10 is not just the pinnacle of Solomon's rule, it is the pinnacle of Israel's history. And it's amazing that as soon as we finish chapter 10 and we begin chapter 11, we start to march down the mountain of prosperity. We start to quickly move in the other direction. If you were to draw out uh, Solomon's rule or even Israel's history, it's a sharp incline under David and Solomon, followed by a sharp decline in the second half of Solomon's life that continues on and beyond uh, at, and through a downward spiral to the end of the book. But first, the highlights. First, the high point, verse 1 of chapter 10. When the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Now, if you have an older translation there, it may say she came to test him with riddles. Because if somebody is going to be your friend on the international scene, you want to make sure they know what they're talking about. You want to make sure that they're going to be a help and an aid to you. And so she comes, she's heard of Solomon's reputation, and to the best of her ability, she puts him to the test. Verse 2. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon in the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Okay, it, it just took all the life out of her. She was amazed by what she had seen. And so she, in her own words, says in verse 6, they, she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe this report until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. She says, I had heard of all these great things, and I didn't believe what I've heard. And not only are those true, but that was only half of it. It's so much more than was reported to me. He, she says, your wisdom and your prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Now put this in perspective again, okay? If you read uh, the Old Testament up to this point closely, God plans on shining a uh, magnifying glass on Israel to draw attention to what makes him unique among all the gods of the ancient world. 
And so if they will obey him, it says that foreigners will come and they will see their prosperity and their blessing and they will know, okay? And so the Queen of Sheba serves the point in the story to show how that's starting to happen, how God's great plan of drawing attention, not just of Israel, but of the whole world to his goodness is going down. And so we hear in the mouth of the Queen of Sheba uh, this report. And then she says in verse 8, Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? Because coming from Sheba, she doesn't worship the God of Israel. She has her own gods. But there's something so significant about this. There's something so clear here that surpasses the natural happenings of human society. And she says, I'm amazed at your God. Now it's worth remembering that the Queen of Sheba, like most people outside of Israel, was polytheistic in nature. So we probably shouldn't read this as a profession of faith in the one true God or a conversion to, uh, to Judaism or to worshiping this God, but she definitely has a point of comparison now, much like we saw back in the book of Exodus in Egypt where the gods of Egypt, the Nile, uh, and, uh, and the sun, and all of these things were put to test against the God of Israel. And so she makes this profound statement about the superiority, not just of Israel, but of Israel's God. Uh, and then notice what she says here, verse 8, because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that, may, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then... She gave the king 120 talents of gold, more, okay? Are you keeping count? That's uh, 420, 200, 660 talents of gold, okay? Uh, tons and tons of tons of gold, as well as a very great, great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord, and for the king's house also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or has been, uh, been seen to this day. Now, we don't actually know what almug wood is, but it was visibly and obviously superior to the wood that was available in Israel. And so Solomon puts it to good use. Uh, and then we read in verse 13, King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her land with her servants. In other words, they establish good relationships with one another. Now we get an explanation of Solomon's overall wealth. Verse 14. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now if we read that just as it says, it is very close to the gold so far. So maybe, and I think this is unlikely, it's saying in that year, here's the total of gold. But the way that it reads, especially with what follows, it is that this is his annual income. Okay, for the duration of his reign. And so, in other words, as impressed as we might be with the levels we were talking about, that's just a year in the life of King Solomon. Okay? Um, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the West 
and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. Now, side note here, we need to recognize what that is. It is solely a symbol of prosperity. Gold is a tremendously soft metal. It does not make a good defense, okay? Uh, that's why you've seen the old films where they're testing for gold and they bite it. That's because gold is that soft. It will give to your teeth, softer than enamel, okay? Uh, but here, you have to imagine the display, okay? You have to imagine these shields are probably not going out into battle. In fact, Solomon doesn't need shields for battle. Why? Complete peace, okay? These are ceremonial shields. They're just... They're just a demonstration of prosperity. The first large shields here, these are full body shields, the type of shield that you could hide behind. And then there's the single arm mounted uh, partial shields. And it says in verse 17 that he made those as well. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three miners of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Okay? So that's 900 shields of different sizes. And in his palace, he's probably, it sounds like, got them lining the walls. Okay? Um, verse 18, the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. Again, a, a huge picture of opulence. Elephants, where we get ivory, uh, or rhinoceroses, are not local to Israel, okay? This is part of his great trade route, and he builds a throne. And side note, this throne that we're going to see is not just chair-sized. It's massive, okay? And for me, anyways, and I'm far from an interior designer, I can't imagine the value of overlaying ivory with gold. It kind of spoils the point, right? But the point is, even on the inside, it's tremendously rare and valuable, uh, here we get a description of the throne, verse 19. The throne had six steps, and at the back of the throne was a calf's head, and on each side of the seats were armrests, and two lions standing beside the armrest, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step, of uh, each step of the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. Okay? And so this, this is a chair, an armchair, with six steps coming up to it, and a total of 14 lions, two uh, on the sides of the chairs and then on every step down, um, as well as, if you have an older translation, it says that it was rounded in the back. Uh, the ESV says that it was a calf's head on the back side of it. Uh, we're not positive on the meaning there. Um, but the point here is, once again, you, you need to imagine, imagine you're the Queen of Sheba. Okay. Now, the Queen of Sheba is a wealthy queen. You know, she brings uh, spices that outweigh any spice uh, you know, uh, availability that anyone uh, in Israel has ever seen. But she walks into this, this palace, okay, made completely of cypress, the trees of Lebr Lebanon, beautiful, covered in these golden shields. And she gets to the throne room, and taking up most of the back of the throne room is this massive single piece of solid gold throne, six steps up with 14 lions, okay? Uh, verse 21, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold, okay? What is this saying? This is talking about silverware and pots and pans and bowls, okay? His kitchenware is all solid gold. In fact, notice what it says next. It says, none were of silver, 
Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Okay. We, we're impressed when somebody brings out the cutlery and it's, you know, solid silver. But in Solomon's day, it was worthless in comparison because all he had was gold. Okay. Um, verse 22, For the king had a fleet of ships at, of Tarshish at sea with a fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Okay, exotic animals as well as exotic metals and building materials. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought him presents, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. So in other words here, this, this prosperity is not merely Solomon's, okay? All of Israel, and especially Jerusalem, are benefiting from this prosperity. Uh, and so there's a, a large sharing of the wealth. Now, uh, when there's the mention of chariots and horsemen, once again, there's reason for concern. Okay? But it is worth pointing out, again, that these chariots and horsemen have nothing to do with war. Okay? They're for show. They're a demonstration of Solomon's glory uh, and not part of his uh, standing army. Not because he wouldn't use them. That's not what I'm suggesting. It's just they weren't necessary for that. He apparently had uh, a love of all things equine, a love of horses, uh, and he loved the show of chariots. And so he gathers all this up. But notice verse 28, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. Now, the reason that's concerning is because all the way back in Deuteronomy, God says, one day you're going to have a king, uh, and here is what the king's to do. And it, it, there's a short list of things that the king is required to do. One is he's supposed to take the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and write it by hand out for his, himself and read it every day. The second uh, is a list of things he's not to do. He's not to multiply wealth. He's not to multiply wives, and he's not to multiply horses, and then it adds, or go down to Egypt to get horses, uh, because that was kind of the center of, of horse breeding in those days. But we can see here, all of those things, minus one, we'll get there in a few verses, are starting to happen in Solomon. And there's a little bit of tension here. Remember, wealth was promised to Solomon, not because that's what he asked God for. He asked God for wisdom. And he said, but because you didn't ask me for wealth, I'm going to make you the wealthiest king on the planet. That's true. But the way that Solomon uses that wealth is as a show of wealth, okay? For, for nothing else, okay? Um, and then we see here the multiplying of horses, including going to Egypt. And then we have the prices here. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported uh, to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. And in other words, he doesn't just collect horses. He becomes a horse trader. Okay? He starts to export them as well as import them. Okay. So 
even with our little uh, you know, gut checks scripturally here with what's going on, this is really the pinnacle. Okay? The temple is built. God's presence is there. A wise king is ruling over Israel whose reputation has gone international. The wealth and prosperity that God has promised if they keep the covenant is very present and very prevalent in Israel. But look at the next verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite, women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. So notice this isn't primarily about race. It's about religion. Okay. They were not to intermarry with the people because uh, God warns them that that will turn their hearts after their gods. Okay. Intermarriage would lead, uh, lead into mingling of religious practice. But notice how it finishes here. Solomon clung to these in love. That word there for cling is very strong. Not only is it the word that's used back in Genesis for the way that marriage is designed, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, shall cling to his wife, same word. But the reason it's used in Genesis and the reason it's used here is because it's covenant language, okay? The two words used in Genesis are forsake your father and mother and cling to your wife. And if you read Deuteronomy and if you read Jeremiah, which are the two great books about the covenant that God has made with Israel, one laying it out and the other laying out its rejection and its consequences, over and over God will talk about how Israel has forsaken him. Same word back in Genesis. And how they cling to other gods instead of clinging to him. Okay? And so the idea here is one of an exchange of allegiance. Now, we all have our, um, our chinks in the armor. We all have the things that we're tempted by. And as you can see here, significantly for Solomon, the danger isn't ultimately the wealth. It's women. And he loves many foreign women, not just this daughter of Pharaoh that we already were familiar with, but look at verse 3. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Okay. We do find cases of polygamy in the Bible, but for, to be honest, we don't find anything like this. Okay, collectively here, this is a thousand women that Solomon has at his beck and call. Some of them who he's married as wives. It mentions that they are princesses there, meaning probably that a majority of them are political marriages to maintain relationships with other people groups. Okay? Uh, as well as concubines, which are there primarily and solely for sexual pleasure and not for political gain. But remember again that uh, outside of this being, you know, a significant picture of Solomon's uninsatiable lust, uh, it's also a significant picture of wealth. These are a thousand women that Solomon is housing and feeding, okay, daily and taking care of. Um, but now we've seen all three, the wealth the horses, and the women multiplying. And it's this one that starts to turn Solomon's heart away. And so verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away 
uh, turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Okay, and so he doesn't stop worshiping the God of Israel, but he incorporates all of the foreign gods of his wife. And it says here in verse 5, Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, and on the mountains east of Jerusalem. Okay? Geographically there, that's the Mount of Olives. And if you visit Jerusalem, you'll find that this is not the outskirts. You could stand on the Temple Mount and see all there is of the Mount of Olives. It's right there. If you've got a really good arm, you could probably throw a stone and hit it. Okay? It's very close. Uh, and so, yes, Solomon builds this temple, and that's where his ministry starts. But now he's building smaller temples for the gods of his wives, and he's frequenting all of them. His worship has gone uh, all over the place. Verse 8, so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Now, you may remember, this is, this is the warning, right? This was the warning that was made to Solomon. This is what I've done for you, Solomon. This is what I will do for you if only you were faithful to me and do not worship other gods, but the love of many women turns his heart. Now, just a, an interesting side note that I've always found fascinating. Um, if you ever get the chance to read, and you should, C.S. Lewis's little book, The Four Loves, he points out that the Greek language has four different words for love, okay? Uh, eros, which speaks of erotic and sexual love. Phileo, where we get, you know, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. Storge, which speaks of the love between friends. And agape, which speaks of this kind of broad term of love that's often used for God's love in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, eros is never used in the New Testament. Phileo, storge, and, uh, and agape are all used of God's love and in other ways throughout the New Testament, but eros is not. However, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we do find the word eros. And what's interesting is this is one of the places where it's used. And so in the Greek translation, it says, now Solomon erosed many foreign women. And it seems to me very likely that the translators there are commenting on the quality, or I would suggest to you the contrast of the love that's being recorded here with marital love as it's envisioned. Okay. Biblically, love, uh, love between a married couple is by definition exclusive because it's the giving of your whole self. Okay. The two become one flesh is the idea envisioned in the Bible. You're giving your whole self. It's mutual self-giving. But to multiply the recipients is to divide the gift. You cannot give wholly of yourself to two people at the same time. And so it seems here that the Septuagint commentators do not take the broad, normal Hebrew word for love here and leave it alone, but actually translate it here with eros, reducing this down to merely a sexual attraction and a self-centered sexual fulfillment. Another place where we find the translators doing the same thing is in the story of Samson. Samson's love for Delilah, they don't leave alone with the normal natural word for love, but use that Greek word, eros. Okay, 
So we can see the consequences of this begin immediately, but I want you to notice as we move through tonight that they are progressive, that they are staggered, okay? And so the first thing that goes wrong is peace goes out the window. Solomon, because of David's faithfulness and because of God's good pleasure, uh, it lives in a time of total peace until now. Verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. When he adds there, our author, who appeared to him twice, the idea there isn't he knows the God of the Bible is, re- of, is real, unlike most of us. He's seen him. That's not the idea. The idea is the content of those two appearances, which, as we've already talked about tonight, were direct warnings on the danger of this, okay, which have now gone unheeded. Okay. Uh, but, verse 11, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice... You've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." And so here we get the sentencing as such. He says, Solomon, because you've turned from me, it will not be your son ruling and reigning over all of Israel. He says, I'm going to break the kingdom in part, but because of David, his faithfulness, not Solomon's, not because you built me a temple, not because you started well, even though things went wrong, but because David was a man after God's whole heart, and although he wasn't sinless, he was wholehearted towards the Lord till the day he died. Because of David, I'm going to make two modifications. One, I'm not going to divide the kingdom in your day. Two, I'm not going to take it away from your son completely, but he will hold a portion, specifically the portion of Judah around Jerusalem because of, and he says here, for the sake of Jerusalem. Verse 14, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. Now, if you trace Edom's lineage all the way back, this is the line of Esau. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And they're regular and consistent enemies of Israel. Um, but under David's rule, they've taken care of Edom. In fact, they had almost completely wiped out the, the royal lineage of Edom. Okay. It almost seems in David's day that it was problem solved. But, verse 15, when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all of Israel remained there six months until he'd cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt, together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. Now, this is actually super intriguing because we find almost the exact reverse of this in the New Testament. In fact, it's Herod the Idumean, an Edomite, who, seeking to put Jesus to death, kills all of the babies in Bethlehem. And where does Jesus do? what does Jesus do when he's just a child? He's taken to Egypt in flight. Okay. But here we see almost the reverse of that. Um, but the point here is, Here is the royal heir to the throne, unbeknownst to David, living under the protection of actually one of David's uh, David's, uh, affiliates, Egypt and 
Israel at this point are on good terms, um, and living there unknown. And so here, verse 18, they set out from Midian and came to Paran, took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance of food and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Taphnes, the queen. And the sister of Taphnes bore him uh, Genebath, his son, whom Taphnes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genebath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. And Pharaoh said to him, what have you lacked with me that you're now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, only let me depart. Okay, and so he sees this as an opportunity, and from that point on in Solomon's reign, he becomes a thorn in Solomon's side, a new adversary who's, who's um, interfering with the peaceful reign of Solomon. That's not the only one, verse 23. God also raised up as an adversary to him Razon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, uh, Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became a leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. And so here a guy becomes basically a prince of Thebes and then is elected as king and establishes in Syria, and he becomes uh, a problem. Now, when you put these two guys together, it's an enemy at the south and at the north, okay? It's a pincer attack. He's, he's being attacked from both sides, but God's not finished yet. He raises up these two men, one to the north and one to the south, and then, verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephraimite, what does that tell us? Okay, he's an Israelite from the northern tribes, an Ephraimite of Zerida, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. Okay, and so this is within Israel. In fact, it's within Solomon's own uh, palace, one of his servants, and this is how it happened. Verse 27, this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. Okay, so he appoints him in charge over Ephraim and Manasseh of the workforce because he's impressed with his ability and his ambition. Verse 29, at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now, let's, let's just recognize something that's going to be difficult for the rest of the book. Okay? First off, this is Jeroboam, not Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Okay? Uh, and so they're actually going to end up reigning at the same time over two separate parts of Israel, and it's hard to keep, them, uh, keep track of them. In fact, I came up with a way to remember, uh, and I just realized that it's backwards. That's how hard this is, because I was going to say, Jeroboam rules over Judah, but he does not. Two J's is a no-go. Rehoboam rules over Judah, and Jeroboam will end up ruling over the other ten tribes, Okay. Um, on top of that, notice that we've just encountered a prophet named Ahijah. Okay? We will find many prophets in First and Second Kings. Not all of them will we know their names, but after Ahijah, we will hit Elijah and then Elisha with an S. Uh, and that's the thing is, um, 
God is so central to Israel that the majority of the names we find have references to God in their name as one of the syllables of their name, uh, which frankly just doesn't leave you a lot of options even when you multiply the names for God. And so we have, uh, we have Joshua that invokes the Yah of God, and then we have the L that shows up in certain names, and then there's a few others, but, but still it can be hard to keep track of the names here. But what happens is Ahijah, who is not Elijah or Elisha, comes to Jeroboam, who is not Rehoboam, Okay. while he's just going about his business for the king. Okay. Um, and so uh, Ahijah, who's a Shilonite, finds him on the road. Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. So just as God has told Solomon, now through God's prophet, Jeroboam finds that he's going to be the one who rules over the ten. Ahijah's just walking down the road with him, and he suddenly stops, and he tears his garment up in front of him, and gives him ten of the twelve pieces, because he's going to rule over ten of the twelve tribes. Um, the two that stay with Judah is Judah, of course, with Solomon's son, as well as Benjamin, which kind of scattered throughout Judah. And so they, they kind of exist in one territory and as one people. Um, now, two things here. First, uh, that word there for garment in the Hebrew has all the syllables of Solomon's name. The vowels are different, so it comes out differently, but there is a play on words here, okay? And so the garment is torn because the kingdom is being taken from Solomon, and those words go hand in hand. Second, one of my, uh, one of my teachers at school would not let me move forward without pointing out to you that since the prophet gives away ten pieces of his garment, he goes home with the first two piece, okay? Enough of that. Moving on. Verse 33. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in their sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Okay? This is why this is going to be divided. Now, this is important for two reasons. One, now Jeroboam understands it's not because Jeroboam's a great guy. It's because Solomon has not been faithful. But two, there's also, isn't there, an implied warning, okay? Where did Solomon go wrong? Leading Israel astray in their worship. As we'll see, Jeroboam's going to walk exactly the same way, despite the fact that this is laid out. Verse 34, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments as David, my servant, did, listen to this, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. 
And so here he says, if you'll be faithful, I'll translate the blessings over to you. I'll give you the same deal I gave David and his lineage. Verse 39, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Now remember, original audience, right? That line stands off the page when you remember the condition of Israel. Because this whole thing, the division of Israel that's going to lead to the deportation of Israel, right here, even in the mouth of Ahijah, he says it's temporary. It's not going to last forever. Okay? Israel will be restored, will be reunited, and will be put under a ruler of David's line again. Okay? Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now, one other point that we need to make here that I think is significant. Realize here that right in this spot, we find that Solomon is unrepentant. That's important. God doesn't just go, okay, Solomon, you've gone too far. There's no going back. Here comes the consequences. Solomon continues to live the life even after those consequences are laid on the table. And when God chooses his man, Solomon goes, I know how to take care of this. I'm powerful. I'll just put him to death. Right? What is he doing here? He is fighting against God, the God who put him on the throne, the God who gave him all the wisdom and prosperity. It is not a good place. Verse 41, now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? As we've already seen, Solomon hired an in-house recorder. And so that in-house recorder wrote the history of Solomon's rule. And that apparently is one of the sources that the author of Kings here has used um, uh, to record and write his own book. Verse 42, in the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Now, what we get there is uh, the first occurrence of what will be a common pattern throughout First and Second Kings, which is the transition between rules, okay? This king dies, and he's buried in this place, and this person takes over to rule for him. Notice here that unlike it was with Solomon, remember he had many brothers and there was a bunch of chaos and conflict for the throne. We don't see any of that with Rehoboam. That transitions uh, peacefully and positively. Now, remember, Jeroboam knows what's coming to him, flees to Egypt, and is just in waiting until Solomon dies. And so the story in chapter 12 opens up with Jeroboam off the map and outside of the plot. It just focuses on Rehoboam. And one of the things that's significant here that we need to keep in mind uh, is the way that God goes about dividing Israel is not a bloody conquering. Uh, it's not an assassination. Uh, it's, it's not even Jeroboam just marching into Israel with an army and demanding surrender of 10 of the tribes because God said so. What we see is God fulfilling the word of the prophet to Jeroboam. Okay. So, verse 1 of 12, chapter 12, verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam the son of Nabat heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from the king Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, okay? And so, notice what happens here. The Shechemites, all of Israel, call for Jeroboam and basically make him the head of their union. 
They want to have a conversation about the way things have been under Solomon. They recognize there's a new regime, and so they want some changes, and they choose Jeroboam to be their mouthpiece. Now remember, he has eyewitness testimony to what it was like, because he was leading it for the Ephraimites, okay? So, verse 4, through the mouth of Jeroboam to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away, which is probably a nicer way than it sounds of just saying, give me some time to think. Okay, I'm a brand new king. This is clearly a serious decision. Let me get some counsel. And so that's what he does. Verse 6, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive. Now, notice that Solomon has counselors. That's part of his wisdom, okay? He elects other people who have wisdom, and he seeks their counsel. And so here we find his son, remember the son of the great wise Solomon, going to those self-same people for help. And so he says, how do you advise me to answer the people? Verse 7, they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Okay, so what do they set up as the ideal here? He says, be a king for the people. Serve them and loosen, meet their requests now, and they'll be loyal to you for the rest of your reign. Okay, it's good advice. As we'll see, it's actually the right advice. Verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. Okay. Now, in other words, he also has people in his cabinet who were his buddies growing up that he's put in office, like certain presidents I can think of, probably all of them, if we're going to be honest, right? Uh, and they're all his age, they're unexperienced, uh, and they're privileged kids, right? They all grew up under the wealth of Sol Solomon as benefit of that, lived in the palace with Rehoboam, the whole deal. So he goes to them and goes, what do you guys think that I should do? Verse 9, uh, he said to them, what advice would you answer the people that have said to me, lighten the yoke your father put us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus you shall speak to the people who said to your, your father made your yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Doesn't that sound like the young, virile, unwise advice that you would expect from a group of men, right? They basically say, no, this is an opportunity to show that you're a greater king than your father ever was. This is an opportunity to exert yourself. This is an opportunity to intimidate them and get the respect that you deserve, right? And so they even escalate, and not only is he supposed to say, look, my father was nothing in comparison to me. Remember, this is Solomon. This is a hard act to follow. Uh, but also, he says, you think it was bad under him. I'm going to make it worse, okay? In fact, the analogy here doesn't really seem to be a very good one, right? Scourging with somebody with whips and then escalating it to scorpions is weird because we don't whip people with scorpions. Maybe the idea here is, you know, that a scorpion's tail is somewhat whip-like, but venomous at its tip. I don't know. Um, but either way, it's an escalation, okay? Now, we have modern unions today, and I think we all understand that this is bad advice, right? They have come humbly and, and not demanding even, but just asking. And he escalates it like he's being threatened by them, okay? 
Um, so, verse 12, Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given them, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for, notice this, it was the turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke about by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. So how does God bring about his counsel here? Phase one, he doesn't gift Rehoboam with the ability his father had, nor do we see Rehoboam come seeking it. He makes sure that there's counsel around Rehoboam, which is true, and then counsel that is false, and it's present here, and it's this that is going to lead to a peaceful division of the kingdom. And so notice what happens, verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. In other words, they reject him and they go, You have no place for us. We have no place for you. Verse 18, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the force of labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. Okay. Talk about not getting it, right? The next day comes, it's a work day, and so he sends the boss to gather up the workers, and it costs this guy his life. Okay. Uh, Israel is in complete resistance here. And so King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee Jerusalem. He's got a mutiny on his hands, right? Verse 19, all Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only, just as Ahijah had prophesied, okay? When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So now what's his next plan? He goes, all right, well, let's gather up an army and get this right. We've got a rival king. We're going to take him out. So he gathers this army. He marches them out, verse 22. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, another prophet, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. So for the second time in Israel's history, there's a mustered up army and God interferes and stops there from being a civil war, an internal massacre. Um, and so now we have two kings and two kingdoms in Israel. The northern kingdom, which is made up of the ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah uh, and, Beth, uh, Judah and Benjamite, uh, and Jerusalem is there, and that's the Davidic line. Okay. Now, right here, you need to remember that uh, Jeroboam was not just told this is going to happen, but also that it was from God and that God would protect him. Not only that, but Jeroboam has seen the significance of this because when the army shows up at his door, God sends a prophet to stop it and the army goes home. Okay? 
What's unfortunate is here is a man who's offered a free place in God's plan, a replacement for the sin of another man, and the first thing he does here uh, is, is go the wrong way. Verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, to the king of Judah. They'll kill me and return Rehoboam to the king of Judah. Now in one sense, just on a basic level, this is a pretty smart opinion. What he recognizes is all of Israel that's under his reign, the northern tribes, three times a year, they're going to go to Jerusalem, to the house of David, and worship God of Israel. Uh, and he says sooner or later, they're going to see how great it is, how beautiful it is. They're going to remember what life was like. They're going to want unity again. And I'm going to lose out because I'm not David's kid, right? But on the other hand, notice here his heart is gripped with fear instead of faith. God has laid out how this is going to work, made promises to Jeroboam, some of which he's seen come to pass at this moment, and he looks at this and he goes, I got to take care of this. This is something I need to fix. And here is the plan that he comes up with. Uh, Verse 28, so the king took counsel. Notice that. Rehoboam takes bad counsel, and that's unfortunate. So does Jeroboam right after him. Jeroboam is not a better man. In some ways, because of his rebellion, he's not even God's man, okay? He could have been, but he takes counsel, and what does he do with that counsel? He made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, not only is this going against the law in the Old Testament by making a graven image to worship, but of all the objects he could have chosen and all the materials he could have made them out of, he makes two golden calves, okay? This is when the t- Ten Commandments are given. This is while Moses is up on the mount for 40 days and Israel's wondering what's happened to him. This is where Aaron builds a golden calf out of the jewelry of Israel and basically says the exact same thing. And it's, it's you know, Israel's first apostasy, first rebellion against God, which becomes uh, uh, an icon and typical of their behavior. In fact, throughout Israel's history, God refers to them as stiff-necked, that's a cow image. It's the stubbornness of a cow that pulls against the reins. It's taken from that image. In some ways, they've become like what they worship, and that's what he selects here, and that's what he presents, and he sets them up in two different places, one at the northern end and one at the southern end, and he sets them up, verse 29, he doesn't stop there. In Bethel, he put the other in Dan, verse 30, this thing became a sin for the people who went as far as Dan before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. Okay, so he also sets up local places of worship on all the high places, which were the places where the Canaanites traditionally worshipped their gods. Remember, Israel is supposed to have one unified place that God will choose to worship in. And not only does he create two primary centers, but he also localizes the worship. And then he appoints priests from every Tom, Dick, and Harry throughout the tribes without selection. He ignores all of the distinctive attributes of Israel's worship. 
Verse 32, and Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. Okay, so he goes, all right, well, the feast is the big draw, we'll have our own. But he doesn't even do it in the seventh month. This is not the Feast of Tabernacles, it's a month too late. In fact, it doesn't recognize anything, it doesn't celebrate anything, the date is irrelevant, it has nothing to do with God's plan or his provision or his calendar. But he sets it all up, it's to be a simulcrum, right, of Israel's worship that's good enough. Okay. And so he does this, and he placed in Bessel... Uh, Sorry, uh, 15th day, 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. Do you hear, do you hear the tone in that? He's worshiping what he made. That's one of the Bible's great criticisms of idolatry, is that we make something to worship. Okay. Um, uh, and he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he made. Okay, so notice here, the emphasis here on made is not that he made the high places or the priests, although he kind of did, but this is man-made religion at its finest. Okay, it's built to fit. It's designed to, uh, you know, be an opiate for the people and keep them away from this thing he doesn't want them to see. And it becomes a snare of Israel for the rest of their days. And it's the reason why the ten northern tribes go into, um, go into exile first with the Assyrians instead of Babylon. It's the reason why uh, we don't find any king's sons ruling and reigning after them because there's constantly rebel kings popping up and assassinating the apparent heir uh, and taking over. It's total chaos from here on out because there is no unified center. There is no worship of the God of the Bible. There are no promises. There is no law. It's all man-made. And so 33, he went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, that's when he made his fake festival, in the month that he devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And so in these three men, we see the trajectory set. Okay. But do you notice how fast it happened? It was two chapters up for Solomon, and then two chapters, and already Israel is divided under two kings. Uh, idolatry has been embraced as the government-sanctioned religion for ten of the twelve tribes. Uh, both Rehoboam and Jeroboam uh, are not Solomon, are not David. Uh, and it makes us wonder where things are going next. Remember again that we already know. This is not just, uh, you know, a potential crisis. This is the beginning of the end. It begins right here. It begins with these choices. And for me, it's one more reminder of the significance of leadership. Okay. Um, Jeroboam and David are going to become the kings through which all the kings of Israel and Judah are weighed from here on out. It'll either be he did like his father David and got rid of the high places and worshipped God and brought the people to worship God, or he did like Jeroboam and led them into idolatry. Okay? These are the two uh, types that are laid out before us. Um, but I want you to notice here, and this is, this is what's so scary, with all of these men... Um, the choices that they make, the consequences are generational in nature. The choices that they make in their personal life, who Solomon sleeps with, 
eventually bleeds out into his worship and then into Israel's worship and then into exile and consequence, okay? There's an interwovenness to all of this and it's the reason why um, it's the reason why we should pray for our leaders, for one, because oftentimes our fate is bound up with theirs and the dangers and temptations, you know. What are you afraid of that would drive you to make two golden calves? What do you actually have to lose? Jeroboam has so much on his plate. Now, we got to recognize here, God is faithful with leaders, and he makes abundant promises to them. And not just the kings of Israel. Read the Psalms. There's promises for any king who will follow the God of the Bible. But, uh, but this is why in the New Testament it says we should pray for our leaders, because what we want is peace, okay? Because the choices they make are the choices of the nation. And the nation that is is the one that God sees and judges. But I want to remind us of one last thing tonight, which is despite all of the unfaithfulness we've seen in Israel, God still brought about David and gives him this tremendous promise of an eternal throne. And despite the mis, uh, missteps of David himself and his son Solomon and his grandson Rehoboam and God's second run, you know, his... Um, uh, what do we call it in a musical when somebody's not the main part, but they're there just if things go wrong? An understudy, right? He's got the understudy right here. He makes the same promises to him. There's a significant problem in Israel. They get as close as they ever get to God's destiny for Israel, and it instantly all falls apart, okay? Because there's a problem with the human heart. The issue in your life that leads you to sin is not difficulty. It's not circumstantial at all. It's internal. It's an internal problem, and we, uh, we could be much worse than we are if given opportunity. And so what God is doing through Israel is moving towards this place of provision to deal with that problem, as well as very clearly demonstrating our need for it. In some ways, Israel is over and over again dealt a perfect hand, and they still go bankrupt. Right? That's why Jesus came. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue through these books, we're kind of going to have to strap on a seatbelt because it's going to get rough. There's going to be a lot of things that are disgusting. There's going to be a lot of things that are frustrating. There's going to be a lot of places where we watch uh, slowly, like a car wreck in slow motion or even a train wreck. Uh, and, uh, and that's what it is for the audience of Israel. For them, it's not a far-removed story. It's how they came to be where they are as they sit in Babylon under foreign powers. But we thank you, Lord, as, as your prophet said, it won't always be that way. And so you sent your son. You restored Israel back to the land. You became a man uh, and lived among the people of Israel and died by their hand and the hand of their Roman oppressors and the hands of humanity as a whole. And through that, purchased back not just your people, but all who would call on your name to fix us, to restore us, to redeem us, to make us your own, to give us the new covenant, a covenant which we will not fail to fulfill because you have fulfilled both halves. 
both our punishment and then through your spirit in us, our success, our righteousness, our faithfulness, which is truly and solely your faithfulness. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we know where this story is going, and it doesn't just go to the bottom, but it also is on its way back up again. And eventually, you will come to earth, you will take a throne, and you will rule rightly and justly over the whole world. And we ask tonight, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.